And I remember talking to a cellmate, and I said, you know what? One of these nights, we're going to hear trucks. And when you hear the sound of those trucks, I think we're going home. And it was a few weeks later, I think I was asleep, but I felt the ground rumble, and I woke up, and it was the sound of trucks. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. 2,362 days. That's how long Captain Hubert Buchanan was held in North Vietnam as a prisoner of war. In part two of my interview, the Air Force fighter pilot discusses life in captivity and his eventual homecoming, plus a Harvard University study in which he served as a control subject, and his thoughts on warfare today. One note, this interview was recorded in Captain Buchanan's living room. You'll hear the occasional chime of a clock, but don't try to keep time by it. The interview is lightly edited, so the chiming each half hour won't match up. Captain, how long were your periods of solitary confinement? I think the probably at one stretch was only three months, maybe. I think total of six months solitary confinement from various times. And then there'd be shorter periods, maybe a week or so of, of solitary. Don't even count that hardly. You know, it's, it's not unusual. They always like to keep you divided and isolated and uh, with some of the high-ranking officers, they were maybe four years of solitary confinement. They had it much worse than someone like me, uh, a lowly lieutenant. Solitary confinement is very peaceful. It, compare that to being tortured or mistreated. You know, solitary confinement's all right. I once had someone um, who had been in solitary confinement for a year and he was brought into the cell I was in, and he was all excited to have someone to talk to. However, he said, I've been designing this house, and I'm going through every little part of it, and I really hate to have that interrupted. <laughs> He'd so, been designing it in his head all yes, alone. Yes, you have nothing. You're not allowed to have anything, so you do everything in your head. And it was kind of amusing that a year in solitary confinement hadn't hurt him very much. He was having a fairly good time. and But now he had all these other fellow prisoners to contend with, so he was yes. going to have to put his and plans on hold, right? <laughs> yes, and one human is more interesting than having the Library of Congress. It is an um, interesting thing about humans. They are very interesting. So you communicated with other POWs by tap code. Explain how that works. You take out the letter K of the alphabet. Correct. If you remove the letter K from the alphabet, you have 25 letters, which can be divided into five groups of five. And so you each line, say A, B, C, D, E would be the first line. And if you wanted to transmit the letter A, you would tap one time. That means the first line is the one you choose. And then you tap the second time. And that tells you what letter in that line. So A is dot, dot. And Z would be five dots and then five dots. And it's a very slow process. And when you're a prisoner, time is of no significance. It means very little. And it is the most versatile way of communicating that you can imagine. Because you can do it by sounds. Any, any kind of sound can transmit this code. And sometimes a POW would be taken out to sweep a courtyard and they use a bundle of sticks for brooms at this time in Vietnam. And it's very noisy. So as the person was sweeping, they would be sweeping in code the whole time while the guards are watching them, having no idea that this guy just sent a whole 
bunch of messages while he's sweeping. You can also do it visually. If you can make a bright spot or a dark spot and vary that, if, if someone can drill a hole and look way across a distance and see a, a little bright spot or a dark spot, you can send it visually. You could take a little thread and tie knots in groups. Also, one time I was in a cell where we had wire, and we ran this piece of wire through a storeroom to another cell, and you could silently pull on the wire and transmit code. So it worked remarkably well in almost every circumstance. Communication was constant, even though the Vietnamese struggled constantly to end it. It was, uh, to me, just amazing how, how well it worked. So what are you gathering? Names of other POWs? Yes, one of the first thing you do is to keep track of all known prisoners so that if you are released or you get away, you escape, you will have the names of who's a prisoner because the Vietnamese would not release that and, you know, it helps make sure that someday everybody is accounted for. I read that one guy with whom you communicated in captivity was Japanese-American Terry Uyuyama, a fellow Air Force pilot who flew 101 missions and had been deployed to the same base in Thailand as you. Did you communicate much with him? I was the first person to communicate with him. Uh, after he was captured. He was in a cell in the area where I was, and I had the wire, which could be projected through a storeroom into his room. And I recall I first had to get him what the tap code is. That's one of our big... uh, duties is to always get the tap code to other prisoners. And so I was able to put this on a little piece of paper that I found. I just put the matrix of five by five, and you can figure it out from that if you look at it and you have a lot of time like we did. So he begins to pull on the wire. So we have contact. He knows I'm American. I gave him the code. And I know there's a prisoner in there, a new guy. A new guy has information about the war. He's very valuable, and we have to get him into the military unit. He's still working. So I first thing is have to keep track of names. That's because we want to know where everybody is. So he starts out U-Y-E-Y, and I go, you know, error, error. This doesn't make sense. And then we try again. U, Y, yes. Well, this is crazy. There's no name like U, Y. Anyway, do it again. Like the third time, he starts off very slowly. I am Japanese American. (laughs) Yuiyama. Then you get it. I say, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Pardon me for the error. Yes. And, uh, oh, there was, yeah, actually a lot of funny things all the time. Yeah, what What was funny? Oh, things like that. You know, actually, <laughs> there's, there were jokes and humor and stuff. The because whole... I love to laugh. Tell me a few jokes or some funny things you're well, thinking of right now. Well, one of them was we give virtual gifts to people because we don't have anything. So, you know, I, I'm going to get you a uh, Ferrari and it's going <laughs> to have white leather seats and all that. And he says, okay, I'm going to buy you a meal that's, um, you know, Mexican food, and it's going to have all this kind of... And so one guy was given a... It was getting Christmas, and they said, we're going to give you, you know, a gift. And he said, here's the gift I want. I have been a POW in Vietnam longer than any other American in any other war. So please stop referring to me as the new guy next door. <laughs> he wanted some respect. Yes. He had been there for years, but he was still called the new guy. 
<laughs> what were some of the other names of the other prisoners you remember tapping? Oh, I with? used to have memorized a uh, hundred and something names. Wow. Well, the first thing in the morning you get up and you go, Abbott, Abbott, Alvarez, and go through the whole list. Um, What's that, just a memory exercise to remember these yes, men's names? Well, yes, so that you can remember if you are the person who somehow gets out, then you have to have the, the list of names. And uh, most people probably went through this long litany of names and information. What were some of those last names off the top of your head? I'll, I, I knew just about everybody. But, you know, Can you run through a few ones of the names? Like McCain and Alvarez and, and my f- people I lived with, you know, Cronin and Zuhaski and Purcell. Oh, I, I know. Hundreds, hundreds of names. Yeah. Were you able to communicate with your family back home, your parents, siblings? Uh, not really. I suppose I think I was allowed to write maybe three letters which were like uh, a few lines on a postcard and I actually got a picture of part of a house and a couple of little pieces of paper that were actually inbound that's that's the only communication so they did know I was alive, and you always say good things. You're like, yeah, everything's great here, doing fine, you know. <laughs> Nobody Wish you were it. here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, having a good time vacationing here in Vietnam. Uh. <laughs> Do you think the Geneva Conventions, treaties and protocols are generally effective deterrence against inhumane treatment? Well, the Vietnamese, the very first thing said, when you remind them that they are signatories to the Geneva Convention, they said, well, that doesn't apply because it's not a declared war, and you are actually a criminal, and you will be treated as a criminal, and you will suffer for your crimes. So they have that loophole. Well, they think they do. Yes, Uh uh-huh. So we were... They considered us air pirates and criminals, and of course, we did everything like we were in the military, which, eh, you know, they harass us, we harass them a little bit. Your release comes in March of 73 during Operation Homecoming. How much notice were you given that you'd be freed? I was in a prison camp far from Hanoi. It was very primitive in a jungle area no electricity, and we did have these interrogators that would talk about the war somewhat, and they said the talks in Paris are making progress. Now, these talks in Paris have been going on so long that no one had ever put much faith in them. They just endless talks about nothing, but suddenly they started saying, there, there's progress being made, which is unusual for the Vietnamese to say this. And so this was just before Christmas. Suddenly, everything became quiet. They stopped talking about this. And then they said, the Americans are bombing everything. Big deal. And we had learned that when our treatment is good, That's because they're getting bombed or bad things are happening to them. They start being nice to us. Whenever things are going well for the Vietnamese, it's the opposite for us. So we were, yay, more the better. That's when Nixon ordered all kinds of stuff, which is, uh, that's what you want for, for the POW situation. We were... Wow, this is great. And there was a lot of stuff going on, but not where we were. We were way up in a jungle area. But we knew something big was going on. I started thinking, hmm, this is, this is at least a development. And then suddenly, no communication. They have nothing to say except, how are you feeling? How's your health? Are you okay? And nobody seemed to care before, but the Vietnamese are suddenly, hey, how you doing? You know? 
And I remember talking to a cellmate, and I said, you know what? One of these nights, we're going to hear trucks. And when you hear the sound of those trucks, I think we're going home. And it was a few weeks later, I think I was asleep, but I felt the ground rumble, and I woke up, and it was the sound of trucks. And I poked the guy over there, and I said, hey, hear that? We're going home. So then we were transported to Hanoi into some very large cells, and we did not go home right away. (laughs) But it was the beginning of the end. And we were put in cells with very large groups of people. So what happens as you're going home when that point finally happens? Oh, it was just like before, you know, you're blindfolded, tied, and put in the back of a big army truck and it rumbles over the the roads. And you can um, communicate very easily that way. If you're near, if you're against anyone, all you have to do is push in code. So... Even while there's a guard standing right there or sitting right next to you, you can be exchanging names and things just by movement. It's the tap code is an amazing method of communication. And then where do you fly from where to where to where? Oh, eventually we uh, are told that we are going to be released. They started giving us food so that we'd maybe fatten us up a little bit. And one day we were, and and they then started following Geneva Convention. The first group is the sick and injured. The next is by order of capture. And I think I was in the third group. So we were uh, told to get dressed in the new clothes, which we were given. And the uh, American officers said, okay, you've always been in the military, you're American military, you're not criminals, so everything is marching. You're going to march in formation, everything is military. And so we were taken out, and we marched to the buses, and we put in these buses, and there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people everywhere in the area, the Vietnamese So we're put on these little buses and driven through the city. And we can see, we're not blindfolded. We can see everything. And we see the beautiful drab gray of communism everywhere. And we get to what looks like the perimeter of an airport, since we're all pilots, mostly pilots or airmen of some kind. And the buses stop. They open the door and bring a case of beer. Vietnamese beer, which is the typical crazy thought of a Vietnamese. We couldn't figure out. Anyway, they open the bottles of beer and pass them around to everybody on the bus. They wait for us to finish the beer. And then we are taken to a giant group of people with television or all kinds of cameras and officials and a a big ceremony going on and so we're out and they say you'll be called by name and you talk to the Vietnamese official you take a few steps and you'll be greeted by an American and you're on your way home I thought it was an interesting ceremony how it took place your first literal taste of freedom was a Vietnamese beer. Yes, well, when beer. we pull up, there's a big bunch of American transports with, with American flags on the side of them. <laughs> and oh, they're how, all did, lined how did up. that feel and this, to see that? That was a good feeling because it's sort of like going from hell to paradise in an hour because as we cross the line there, so I don't know if it was maybe a full colonel Maybe, I think maybe an army colonel. And he salutes and says, welcome home. And immediately somebody grabs what you have and holds you up, escorts you onto the airplane. And there, as nurses, which were selected for attractiveness, according to the pilot, he said, you may have noticed this. (laughs) (laughs) And they greeted us in a very friendly way. 
And we sat down on the airplane, and it was just a few minutes, and the airplane taxied out and took off. They had photos of, of the, the people, their reaction. When, first one was when you take off. That got a good response from our group. And then when the guy said, okay, we just crossed international waters, you're out of Vietnam. And so then we fly to uh, the Philippines and land there. And we thought we would just, you know, just they'd process us out. But as we're taxiing in, we see all these people and TV cameras and stuff and say, hey, what's going on over there? You know, can, maybe later we can go see what's going on. And they said, well, that's for you. For what? They said, that's, that's, they're waiting for you to come home. So, wow, what's that all about? And so then we get off the airplane and it's like party time. <laughs> We're back home, all Americans. I never had a woman army colonel kiss me before, but she grabbed, <laughs> holy smokes, what a welcome. This is good. Never before or since. <laughs> yeah. So, so they're very excited and we are even though it's a military base, we're back in the United States. First, I'm going to tell you what it was like the next morning. So we're processed various ways in, at, at the uh, Air Force Base. Anyway, so we're thinking, wow, think of what it's going to be like to wake up tomorrow morning. You're going to come out of your sleep, and this is going to, we're in paradise and so he can hardly sleep at night, but eventually all go to sleep in this big barracks area. And we're waiting. We're thinking, oh, they're going to have these beautiful nurses come in and wake us up. <laughs> and so we're all sound asleep. And suddenly, like at six in the morning, all these bright fluorescent lights come on. And this drill sergeant comes in and says, hey, get up, you worthless guys. You got a lot of stuff to do. You got to get fitted for uniforms. I want you out of those beds. I go, oh, no. Back to normal. <laughs> what was your first meal? Well, that was the, the first day we arrived. We go into this cafeteria. And they said, okay, this isn't the typical cafeteria Anything imaginable will be made for you. You can have lobster steak. You can have beer. You can have, we have chefs, so we'll make anything you want. So they said the first ones we had come through here, we thought they would be such bad shape that we had like baby food for them so that they could eat. And then they expressed anger which made us motivated to change that for the future group. So, so that was the first meal. I don't recall what it was, but it was good. What was the debriefing process like? We were assigned an officer who just asked us, what are your experiences and what did you do while you're a prisoner? You know, there was a lot of anti-war sentiment in the United States and I was very impressed that you were allowed to say anything you wanted to anybody with no restrictions. If you wanted to be you know pro-Vietnamese, anti-American, no problem. It's freedom of speech. Were you and hurt? Nobody though? was that way of our group. <laughs> were you hurt though by the way you were treated by your fellow Americans? By, by the rhetoric. Well, we thought that that made our situation worse all the time. And so whenever there's a lot of military activity, that usually made things better for us. And uh, no, we as a group, I think we were treated wonderfully by everyone. And it was the, the previous regular soldiers that had all the bad treatment. And it was very different from us. For us, we were treated very nice by all Americans, you know. We, we had all the good things, and the other guys had all the bad. Yeah. 
Your hometown of Austin, Indiana, hosted a celebration in your honor. They had 3,000 cheering fans show up. Kids were given the day off from school. Describe that day. Well, when I was thinking that the war was coming to an end or that I was going to come home, I was planning how I was going to do it. And I thought, we'll probably fly into Louisville, Kentucky, the largest airport in the area. And I didn't have a car, so I'd probably have to take a Greyhound bus to my little town. And what I was planning, I was going to get off the bus and then just walk home, which was a few blocks away, and come in the back door and surprise everybody. (laughs) They wouldn't know. And instead... Yeah, thousands. And it, the crowd was probably a lot of people from outside the town, too, because it was very large with, you know, representatives and politicians and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was a big deal. And it's probably the biggest thing that ever happened, even to this day, for, the, for my town. It was a very nice welcome. Just for you. Yes, I was so impressed. You know, what did I do? <laughs> You're humble. Yeah. Huh? You're humble. Well, I didn't contribute a whole lot to anything. But, hey, um, I, I like the way Americans take care of Americans. That was, they were so nice. Did you learn of the moon landing in captivity? Yes. I was in a camp. I think I had five other people in the same cell with me at this time. And it was a Sunday, and they, they have these speakers where they're playing propaganda. Of That's all you get is propaganda. They were reading an article from a Russian newspaper. And I, I hardly pay attention to this stuff, but I, everybody else was asleep, I think, except one other guy. And it was saying something about the wonderful exploits of the Russian uh, space program. And they went on and said, we sent an automated probe to the moon. And it was so successful. And, And then at the very end it said, and we did this without risking human lives like other countries in their irresponsible activities and that would be America so I I was listening to that and I said hey did you hear that last sentence what you know what the implication is the United States put a man on the moon isn't that what that means so we said wow you know that kind of sounds like it and then a few days later one of the interrogators said yes the U.S. put a man on the moon. Mm-hmm. Did you learn of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination while in captivity? Probably. Any, anything negative that would seem going on in the U.S., like riots, race riots, things like that, very extensive reports all the time. They, they always painted, you know, the country's falling apart, everything's bad, and um, we would get that kind of information, but... Uh, landing on the moon. No, you wouldn't get that probably. Did you notice any changes? You'd been gone so long. Yes, I did. One is traffic seemed to be, cars seemed to be everywhere that I didn't know. It just seemed like, wow, the population's increased. Plus, there seemed to be an acceptance of drugs that before it was very looked down upon or uh, negative to have anything to do with drugs. But I ran into a lot of young people who were proud that they were taking drugs or they thought, wow, isn't this great? And when I looked at their life, I I don't think it is great. And it's kind of a, I don't know, less respect for authority when, and in history when it took thousands of years to come up with these workable plans, and they seem to be quite willing to just throw them away for an unproven idea. You've said you didn't suffer from PTSD. After such a traumatic event, though, why do you think that's the case? Well, I'm not really sure, but my theory 
was that I was fairly well prepared for all this. I, I was older than maybe a lot of soldiers who were drafted. I had a very good, stable family life growing up. I had been educated through college. I had training, years of training in the Air Force, a lot of experience doing things, a lot of information. And so I felt somewhat confident in the situation, as well as a person could expect. Uh, another idea, I thought maybe I didn't have the stimulation that would cause PTSD, like, like seeing body parts scattered around on the ground like a young infantryman might. Those were some of my theories, but uh, the people have said, well, the stimulus that you've had is very significant also. You have the bullets going by, the bombing raids while you're on the ground, torture, well, various things that you did have a good supply, and you're very fortunate, but apparently you have zero PTSD. And uh, I do not have any symptoms that I am aware of, of any kind. Harvard University even put you in a control group when they conducted a PTSD study what did they learn or you learn following that study? Mainly they learned that I did not have it, and then they tried to explore reasons why I would not and maybe others did try to look at all the characteristics. It was a three-year study with a lot of complexities to it, and they were still compiling all the information when... They told me the program was finished, and they hoped that uh, in the future it would help people. Not only people in the military, but if you have a violent automobile wreck, you could have PTSD from that. So hopefully the information they've derived from this program will be useful for everyone sometime in the future. But you weren't given a lot of information as to what they learned, correct? No, it, it's all psychological studies, and they keep you in the dark on that. They use double-blind studies and placebos and, and even shocking for a, a little test where if you respond in certain ways, they shock you. <laughs> so it was a very interesting program. You were held captive from September 1966 to March 1973, six-and-a-half-year period, 2,362 days, one year longer than the late Senator John McCain. Did you meet him? Oh, I met him after the war, yes. Uh, I saw him several times when he was a candidate for president, and oh, I was probably near him in several situations, but I never was in a cell with him and had a lot of close contact and never much contact after the war, after no, captivity. No, he was off to uh, being in politics, and I was doing other things. So you received full back pay for those six and a half years? Correct, yes. Any extra payouts in addition to salary? Uh some of the money was in a military account, which received interest, and it was considered hazardous duty. Uh, I was temporary duty, and you usually are paid an extra fee for that. But when I was debriefed, they said, no, you're not going to get any extra money for those six and a half years uh, for food allowance and quarters because those were provided for you. So we're not going to pay you for that. <laughs> Not not the level of food you were accustomed to. Not a soft bed either. <laughs> no, but they were government provided, they said. So, sorry, you don't get those. <laughs> you were promoted to the rank of captain. Just one promotion, though, from 02 to 03. Well, most prisoners were promoted by uh, the number of years they were there when you were up for uh, being considered for your next rank. They considered 
your performance as a POW as qualifying you to make that rank. So it was, it didn't require much. It tended to be automatic. But it became complicated because some of the POWs were there for so long that their actual rank was lower than the new POWs. So they had to come up, is, is the person who probably was promoted senior or is the one who was promoted, actually promoted senior? But it was all worked out. The leadership was amazing and very impressive, you know, inspired the rest to follow because the old guys had it so bad that we young ones could certainly put up with something like that. You were awarded the Silver Star twice. Do you remember the descriptions of those awards? Oh, they're just vague wording, and I don't pay any attention to medals. As one of my soulmates said, I've probably done some things that I deserved a medal for that nobody will ever know, and I probably was given medals for things that I didn't deserve that much. I read you also received the Legion of Merit, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, the Air Medal, and the Prisoner of War Medal. You're highly decorated. Oh, I don't pay any attention to that. It, it really has, I don't, I'm not even interested. <laughs> They're just medals. When you returned from captivity back to the U.S., people who had been wearing POW bracelets with your name on them mailed those bracelets back to you. How many did you receive? Oh, I received hundreds, probably. I, I had a, a lot, and I've even recently received some. I maybe once a year will get a, one of the bracelets, and it will have a letter saying when it's, it's usually teenage girls seem to be the most ones. At, at, the, at that time during the war, they would have the medal or the bracelet, and they would, after the war, they'd put it away somewhere, and then they're married and have kids, and they're going through a box, and there it is. And then they go on the Internet, and they mail it back with a letter of apology saying, sorry it took so long. But, uh, yes, I still, I still get those, those bracelets occasionally. What lessons do you hope our nation learned after the Vietnam War? Well, I think that our, our greatest strength is to just lead by example. If we have a really great country that people want to emulate, that is more powerful than anything else. If, if you try to interfere with other, other countries or, or get into military actions, it has a lot of negative impact, unforeseen things. And it's usually not effective. I, th I think we just are doing the wrong thing when we get involved in that. I know that it's better to stop a threat in another location before it gets here. But when you start meddling in other countries, I think we have a, it's ineffective often and counterproductive at times. So I think if we can set a really good example for the world, I, th I think that's the best thing we can do. You were born in 1941. The U.S. has been at war in some capacity 47% of the time that you've been alive. For my daughters, who are teenagers and were born in the early 2000s, that figure is 100%. Has America become addicted to war? Well, we do have a wonderful military that's capable of doing things. And whenever uh, diplomacy and other methods uh, haven't been very effective, we're very eager to step to the next, the next thing, which is the military, because the military is quite amazing that we have. And uh, as I have mentioned, I don't think it's the best plan. I, I, I prefer more peaceful things, like, like my experience here. One day you're at war and this guy's the enemy, and then everybody says, oh, it's over now. Now we're friends. It's like in the book 1984. 
you know, so I'm friends with the guy that captured me, you know, I met the guy that shot me down, and it just seems ironic that, okay, the nation decides we're at war, okay, the nation decides we're not, so now we're friends. A few years ago, Harper's Magazine convened a panel of former soldiers at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Most of those on the panel had seen combat in Iraq or Afghanistan. One of the questions that they grappled with was, why do our current conflicts drag on? And some of the comments from that panel were political failings, lack of coherent strategies, sunk costs, deficient knowledge of local conditions— we don't typically go all in. We're hardwired not to give up. Most Americans are removed from the military experience. Or we have this idea that we can impose our ways on foreign lands with our government-in-a-box kit. Sounds very accurate to me. Yes, I would probably agree with all those. We're flawed. We make a lot of mistakes. I don't think we're particularly any worse than any other country in history. In terms of politics, it doesn't seem like we agree on much these days in this country, but we do have strong bipartisan support for our effort to fund our military to the tune of $740 billion this fiscal year, which is higher than the combined military spending of the next 10 countries. That includes Russia. It includes China. And it also includes some of our allies. Have we just made peace with war? President Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex. I think that is somewhat of a factor. And all politicians like to bring employment into their area, so they keep voting that uh, part of an airplane is made here, and everybody gets a little part of that. They get reelected. And... We don't, don't like to get hit. We don't like to be weak and, you know, don't mess with the USA or you'll be sorry. That's, that appeals to most Americans. You know, you treat us wrong, you, you're going to regret it. And I, I agree, but, yep, it seems like we do spend a lot on the military. The documentary filmmaker Ken Burns lives here in New Hampshire with us. Did you watch his series on Vietnam, and what did you think if you did see it? I did see some of it. I did not see it all. I usually like his productions. He's so thorough and very good. Um, as I watched it, I noted a little feeling of negativity, and I think some of the other POWs, he's, um, I, he doesn't present the U.S. as in such a good light sometimes. And the Vietnamese is being so wonderful, maybe. Anyway, just um, I, I think our intentions were pretty good and we weren't all evil military baby killers. And the Vietnamese weren't all innocent at all. They were communists and vicious and not so good. So... I don't know. I can't really criticize them because I didn't see the whole series. I have some questions from podcast listeners. Tom wants to know which Vietnam movie, in your opinion, was first most accurate and second, which one was most enjoyable? Oh, I, I didn't see very many of them. I always feel like I know everything about Vietnam already. I don't have to be entertained by a movie. But I, I like what it's Good Morning Vietnam or the, with Robin Williams. <laughs> I, I like that. Jane, another listener, she works at the library here in town. She wants to know, did you read the book Unbroken? And if you did, how similar was your experience to that of Louis Zamperini, the American World War II vet who was a Japanese POW. I did read that book, and I would say his experience was far worse than mine. He was dealing where he was of almost zero value, maybe even negative value, and the Japanese were savages in how they treated people. Um, I very quickly figured out I had value to the Vietnamese, and I was more like a hostage 
And that made me quite a bit different situation than what was going on with the Japanese. He was in groups of people, and we were isolated. and you know, They were different, but I'd much, much rather be with the Vietnamese than with the Japanese. She also asked, how has your experience as a POW affected how you live your life on a daily basis and the relationships that you have with others? I am uncertain. I don't know if six years changes your personality or maybe it affects you in some way. I think one of the things is materialism. Things are not of much value. We had nothing. You know, being concerned about things is is a waste of time, pretty much. And I was never much motivated uh, for things after that. I, I don't know if that was before Vietnam or what. I'm not really sure how I was changed, but uh, I think it doesn't take very much to make me happy. Because <laughs> I... I, I had some even happy experiences while a prisoner. It doesn't take much if you if things are not so good and something kind of nice happens, makes you very happy. You're a simple man. Oh, I'm very simple. I think all my teachers used to say, "Boy, are you simple." Smart. <laughs> I don't but know. simple in pleasures. Mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> Maybe. The last listener question from Jeff. Do you ever feel that talking about your experience with someone who has not experienced combat is challenging? Well, I think it would be almost impossible to know because its words would be difficult to express it. It's, it's an emotional feeling, and it's very powerful and difficult to express in words. But if people are shooting at you and trying to kill you, it is definitely a very special feeling that uh, hopefully most people don't experience. You became a commercial pilot after you came back to the U.S. What was your career like working for Eastern and Delta? What type of jets did you fly? Any interesting stories along the way? Well, I started off with Eastern Airlines as a co-pilot on a Electra, which a turboprop and just flying the shuttle between New York, Montreal, and Boston, Washington. And then a, a sort of a broken career, because we had layoffs and I was off for years. And then uh, called back, and uh, I was a co-pilot on a Boeing 727, a flight engineer on a Boeing 727. Then Eastern Airlines went out of business Worked for Delta, got laid off again as a flight engineer there um, and an instructor pilot for a while. And the only thing I can relate is somewhat unrelated to this, but I noticed that one person I flew with, a pilot, anytime a young boy or girl would look in the cockpit, he would invite them in have them sit down in a seat, and he would show them all the lights and buttons and make sounds, all the, the warning sounds. And this isn't unusual, but he seemed to be constantly doing this. And after being around him a while, I said, wow, you must really like kids, or, you know, you always go to, out of your way to show them all this. And he said, well, when I was about 12 years old, my family went on vacation, and we flew there, so I, I stepped on the airplane, and I looked in the cockpit, and the pilot said, come on up, I want you to sit down, and he did all the lights and bells, and I had never had any interest in anything like this until he did this, and after a couple minutes, I got up, and I walked back with my family, and I decided I was going to be an airline pilot someday. And he said, here I am. So we have so much influence that we don't even know about. Sometimes in a minute or two, we can change a person's future life. I hear you still have the car that you bought before you became a POW. What's the story with that car? Well, I was in pilot training at Laredo Air Force Base, and I had never owned a car yet. So 
I decided that my first car was going to be a motorcycle, and I went down to the Yamaha dealer, and I picked out a motorcycle, and I said, wow, this will be my first transportation on my own. And I called up the insurance company, and I said, okay, I'm buying this Yamaha, and how much will it be, and all that. And he, he said, okay, it's this, and it'll, it's quite expensive. Uh, you know why? I said, no, not really. He said, it's because it's dangerous. And he said, how old are you? You know, I'm 24, and you're a, you're a pilot, right? And he said, you know, this is very dangerous. And he said, here's what I think you should do. You should walk out of there and go buy a car. And we will insure that car, and you'll be much safer. And so I did that, and I bought my first car, a 1958 Triumph TR3. I have it in my garage today. But didn't it undergo a paint job that you didn't authorize? Well, while I was gone, my sister had it, and she decided it should be painted. And I said, you know, the original paint and all, but she had it painted, and so there it is. Yep, it's all restored, and it's just like when I had it many years ago. Do you pull it out in good weather? Oh, only go out on Sunday afternoon in the summer when the sky is clear. I don't want it to get wet or dirty. How many miles are on it? Oh, the odometer doesn't work, so I don't know. It uh, quit about 75,000, I think, and I never got it fixed. I never needed to know how fast I was going or how far I had been. I was happy that it just got there fast. Well, if you wanted some speed, you could have just flown a jet, right? <laughs> well, we did that also. How do you hope to be remembered? Oh, I don't know. Never thought of that one. Uh, I, I hope I uh, got through my challenges with adequate grade of C. My favorite, the gentlemanly C. It's all I hope for or was able to achieve. So that's all. Just, just a kid from Indiana. With four children, four grandchildren, and yes, a loving wife. They... I'm I'm happy how they turned out. They're they're fine. So at least I had part of the the uh, effect on them and their mother. Do you have a compelling story, or do you know someone I should interview? Drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail dot com. Please tell a friend to listen too. That's how we grow our audience and continue podcasting. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation. Diary of a Nation.